that we're studying from Revelation 16 is addressing that very thing. And before we uh, get into our study, I'd like to ask if you just bow your heads and I'm going to offer a short prayer. Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to give our attention to your word, especially the part that uh, tells about your wonderful promise to come again and take us home. So Lord, we pray for your blessing as we study the words, the symbols, the message of your Holy Bible today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. We started our study last night on this part. We'll uh, work again on uh, another part of this verse today. And then this afternoon, we're going to be taking a look at some of the other verses that are in this section. The session at 2.30 addresses uh, what we read there in verse 14, when it talks about three um, Three entities that all have the uh, frog-like spirits coming out of their mouth. What, that, what is that talking about? And then the session at 3.30, we're going to be getting down into verse 16, where it talks about Armageddon. Armageddon is a topic that is on a lot of people's minds. But I fear that for, for many, they're missing the real beauty of the message that is really captured in these verses. If you take the time to unwrap the words and phrases and uh, find out what the, what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying in this verse is that if you want to know what's coming ahead, you've got to look back. God is always using uh, things in history to tell us about his plan. And one of the big events in terms of uh, the history of this planet and how God has dealt with his people took place about 2,500 years ago when God rescued his people from Babylon through the ministry of someone named Cyrus. And his story is in this verse that we're looking at, along with other things. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. In a nutshell, what we're going to see is that 2,500 years ago, God commissioned Cyrus to act on his behalf, though he did not know God. And he went and uh, conquered Babylon and released the people, let them go back to their homeland. And in that event, there are certain things that illustrate the mission, the calling of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is a book about Jesus, isn't it? And the book of Revelation is a, a book about Jesus Christ. And yet, the popular version of what Armageddon is about when it deals with tanks and guns and missiles there in Palestine misses what the real message, the beautiful message that is in this passage of the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at as we study this verse and the ones that succeed. The question, is it a literal battle that it's talking about or a symbolic one? We believe that it has to do more with the symbolism of the figures. And we base that not just on our own opinion, but on what the Bible says, which is, I believe, the proper way to understand. The word battle in the book of Revelation is, uh, is the word polemos. And we get a word in our language from that word. It's the word polemic. What is polemic talking about? It's talking about a war of ideas and principles and concepts more than just physical battle. So we believe that this battle is primarily a spiritual one. It will involve physical elements, and there will always be conflict in the Middle East. But that's not what this verse is really addressing. It's addressing the last segment of the battle between Christ and Satan. It's not limited to one part of the world. It's a global issue. It's wherever there are people who need to make a decision either for God or against him. That's what Armageddon is. The book of Revelation is like a collage, a grouping together of pictures from the Old Testament that tell the story of how God redeems his people. And that's what Armageddon is, is uh, taking a look at. 
When we study the, book, study the book of Revelation, we particularly want to pay attention to the meanings of the words and the role that a person or, or event played in the past as illustrating what God is going to do in the future. That's the key concept. What's the meaning of the term? What role did it play? And if we have that concept in mind, we will uh, find that the Bible is a, a fruitful treasure house. By the way, if you have one of these things, you can access the meanings of the Bible words very easily. Blue Letter Bible is a free application you can download. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek, but if you go there, you can get right into the words themselves and find out what they mean and do some really, really good Bible research that way. I recommend it highly. Uh, last night, this morning, we talked a little bit about the River Euphrates because it's mentioned in this verse. And we find that the River Euphrates was the boundary line between true worship and false worship. It was a boundary not only geographically, but spiritually. And that concept plays an important role in our text. As far as this being the physical boundary, when you go back to Genesis, uh, you'll find that God promised Abraham that his, his posterity would inherit the land from Egypt all the way up to the river, which is meaning the river Euphrates. That's in Genesis 15. And we find that during Solomon's reign, that was actually achieved. It tells us there in 1 Kings that Solomon reigned from the river all the way down to Egypt. The river Euphrates was the boundary geographically, but it was much more than that. It was the boundary spiritually. If you look in that text there in Joshua 24, and by the way, um, if you don't want to take time to write down all these texts, because we're going to put a lot of texts on the screen, uh, the slides, the PowerPoint slides, are going to be available on the church website. You can also let me know personally. Give me your email address, and I will email you uh, these PowerPoint presentations so you can have the, the uh, information that way. And, of course, after sundown tonight, we have a book available too. So in Joshua, it's saying that in ancient times, God called Abraham from beyond the river where idolatry was practiced. He called him to come to this side of the river to preserve and to uh, communicate to worship the knowledge of the true God. And because of that, Abraham was given a nickname. He was called Abraham the Hebrew. And what does Hebrew mean? It means literally the one who has crossed over, the man from the other side. So I ask you right now, are you a Hebrew? Have you crossed over from the kingdom of Satan into God's kingdom, from the kingdom of false worship to uh, worshiping the true creator God? We all ought to be Hebrews, right? And Abraham was. But that was the idea of what the river Euphrates represented. On the other side, well, all right, idolatry was practiced. But on this side of the river, this is where the true uh, worship of God is preserved. In the Greek language, it was given this name, paratis, means one who crosses over. Sad to say, Satan took that word and put a twist on it, so that 2,000 years ago, that very word, which meant the one who crosses over from false worship to true worship, instead was used to refer to somebody who worshiped the serpent god. Isn't that how Satan does it, though? So the, it was the boundary between true and false worship and, of course, the river Euphrates is the river that flows through Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, as well as other places of the Bible, Babylon represents the kingdom of apostasy. And the book of Revelation tells us that one, at one time there will be an image erected by Babylon to which all will be commanded to worship the idol Sabbath. So what do waters represent in Scripture? It says in the text that the, the um, angel poured out his vial on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. 
So what is that talking about? Well, you're probably familiar with this text in chapter 17 of Revelation where it says, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Water represents people, crowds. But it's a little bit more specific than that because in Revelation 17, it's the waters where the harlot sits. Not talking about the River Jordan or the River Nile. It's talking about the River Euphrates specifically although water can represent people in other ways too. But, but in this context, it's specifically talking about the waters of Babylon. The waters of Babylon are multitudes and peoples and nations and so on. And it's talking about not just a placid lake or pond, it's talking about a raging river. So we need to get that concept in our mind. When it says the river Euphrates is dried up, it's talking about the multitudes who support the system of Babylon, apostate religion, and particularly as they are in a state of being a rushing and raging army. That's the particular emphasis there. Waters equate to armies in the Bible. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, if you have your Bible there, let's look at Isaiah 8, 6 to 8 very quickly. We're not going to be able to look up all the texts that we have just for constraints of time, but let's look at a couple of them anyway. As a matter of fact, let's go to 17. Chapter 17 of Isaiah if there's one verse in the Old Testament that you would say, I would like a verse that would help me understand Revelation 16, 12. When it says the angel poured out his vial on the review phrase, what is that talking about? This would be the one verse that I would point to. Isaiah 17, verses 12 and 13. The concept is that the, the waters it's talking about, the waters of Babylon, are a raging, rushing army bent on destruction, bent on attack against God's people, aiming to destroy them. Look at this verse. Isaiah 17, 12, 17, 12, and 13. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but, I like that word, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. This verse tells us exactly the same thing as what Revelation 16, 12 says. And we understand from our knowledge of prophecy that the rebellion that began in heaven, the issue of which was loyalty to God expressed by willing obedience, transferred down to this earth, seen there in the Garden of Eden where that, the very same issue was, was displayed. That same issue, that same war is progressing down to a final climax now and God is looking for those people who are willing to say, I will love, serve, and obey you at whatever cost. Would it make sense for God to take people to heaven that are rebels, that would not obey and serve him? Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't. God wants everybody to be saved, but heaven is going to be an environment where sin does not exist, and sin is rebellion. And so he's going to ask every single person on this earth, are you willing to stand up for me? Are you willing to love, serve, and obey me? That's the issue of the last days. Satan hates those that will stand up and be true to God. When the three Hebrews stood up there in Daniel 3 at the fiery furnace, what did, what did it cause? It caused the king to become enraged. The rage, the wrath of Babylon was exhibited back then and will be at the last days. And so Satan is going to mount an attack against those who will, will honor and serve God and keep his commandments, who are willing to say, I'll honor your seventh day as the memorial of creation, despite what the rest of the world says. Under the pressure of that moment, those who stand true to God will be the objects of Satan's attack. 
and he will mount an assault and try to wipe out those who are true to God. And during the context of Revelation 16, which is after the close of probation, God has decreed that not one of his faithful will, will be lost. Prior to the close of probation, yes, but after the close of probation, no. Not one saint will lose his or her life. So when that assault comes, God is going to repel it. The Lord is going to bring that assault to an end. The weapons that were raised against God's people will be worthless and useless. That's what this text is saying. It's a beautiful picture of what God did in the past and what he will do in the future to save his people. And I submit to you that the, the understanding of Armageddon that focuses on a literal battle in the plain of Palestine misses the beautiful picture of salvation that God would have us see. So Isaiah 17 brings out this imagery that waters, raging, rushing waters, symbolizes armies on the tack, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. They will dry up. They will disappear. They will evaporate. And that's told in all these other passages. Let's take a look at just one more there, Isaiah 59. This is one that might be familiar to you. The last part of verse 19 says, When the enemy comes in like a flood, that's a raging river, when the enemy comes in like a flood, what? The Spirit of, God, of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Or, because it is the very same word we just read in Isaiah 17, the Lord will cause him to flee and disappear. That's the message of Armageddon. Now, the root meaning, we're looking at words and taking them apart to find what they mean. The root word of the uh, river Euphrates itself uh, embeds that concept because it comes from a word to break forth, to rush. That's what Euphrates comes from. And uh, we looked at these texts in Samuel and Genesis that, that uh, uh, bring out that meaning last night. I want to read just one paragraph from the book Great Controversy that, that uh, is a perfect description of Revelation 16, verse 12. Sister White says that with shouts of triumph, jeering, and imprecation, throngs of evil men, are about to rush upon their prey. That's the rushing river coming to destroy. When lo, a dense blackness deeper than the darkness of night falls upon the earth. Jesus will interpose and save his people. That's what Revelation 16 is, is talking about. God will rebuke and they will flee far away. That's the same word as in Isaiah 59, even though it's translated differently. So we looked at uh, five different stories in the Bible that illustrate this principle of the drying up of waters symbolizing God redeeming his people. The first one is the story of the flood. After the world was destroyed by water, God sent a mighty wind. He sent his spirit and the earth was dried up. Exodus 14 is the story of, of uh, Israel leaving Egypt after their captivity. And uh, uh, what did they find? They came up to the Red Sea, and just about that time, Pharaoh had a case of buyer's remorse and said, why did I let those people go? I need more projects built. And so he chased after them. So the Israelites find themselves trapped with mountains on both sides and the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh coming up swiftly at the rear. What was going to happen? God dried up the waters and saved his people. Joshua chapter 3, they come to the borders of Jordan. Symbolism there? Absolutely. They're leaving the journey of the wilderness wanderings, and they're going to enter Canaan land. You, you, you have to have your spiritual eyeglasses to get all these stories of what they mean. And that symbolizes when Jesus comes. We will be crossing the spiritual Jordan and entering the heavenly promised land. And what happened to make that possible? He dried up the waters so that they could cross as on dry ground. In 2 Kings 2, 
the wonderful story of Elijah, does, does he bear a resemblance to last-day Christians? Absolutely. And what happened is he was going to be escorted in that fiery chariot. The waters were dried up, and he crossed over and went to heaven. So these are all stories in the Bible that tell us, if you have your, your glasses on, you'll see that drying up of waters means God redeeming his people, God working a special miracle to take his people home and save them. But even though those are four great stories, the one that really takes the cake on this is the story of Cyrus, because that's exactly what he did. In, in Revelation 16, 12, you have to see the story of Cyrus uh, told there. He is the one who dried up the river Euphrates and conquered Babylon, released God's people, sent them home, and uh, allowed them to rebuild. Now, one last thought before we get to Cyrus's story, an illustration from the life of Christ. Remember the picture is that Satan is going to organize mobs of armies to try to attack God's people and put their lives out. But God is going to intervene and put it to a stop. We have an illustration in Jesus' life that, that tells us that very clearly. At the end, when he was praying in the garden, there was a mob that came led by Judas. And uh, they, they wanted to do him harm. This is what the Bible says. Whom are, are you seeking? Jesus asked. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, you know probably that when things are printed in your Bible in italics, that means that they're not part of the original text. That means they were supplied by the translators because they thought that they would, they thought it would make the sentence flow better. But uh, we recognize that that isn't there. So if you read it without that word, what is it? Jesus said to them, I am. And the lovely music we heard during our offertory, Mary, did you know that he is the great I am? Divinity flashed through humanity when Jesus said, I am. And what happened? It says, when they said, when he said to them, I am, what happened? They drew back and they fell to the ground. Now that's what's going to happen when the mob in the last days, the last day counterpart, comes against the followers of Jesus, bent on doing them harm. Jesus is going to reveal himself and they are going to fall back and be as dead men. Now that's not how the story ends in John 18. It couldn't end that way because Jesus came here to die. That was his purpose. And so they recovered and they did arrest him, put him on trial and put him on the cross. But at the end of time, it's going to be just what you read in this verse right here. Jesus is going to interpose for his people and save them despite the assaults of, of Satan. So that's what this verse is talking about. It's the telling the story of Jesus through the history of Cyrus. The drying up of the waters is accomplished by God's Spirit, as the Holy Spirit protects people. It involves Babylon's self-destruction and ultimately Christ's return. And we're not going to take time to go through all of those now because we are running short. Let me just uh, share with you this one uh, comment from the Great Controversy. Great Controversy. At the end, people see that they've been deluded. They accuse one another of having led them to destruction, but all unite in heaping their bitterest condemnation upon the ministers, unfaithful pastors who have prophesied smooth things. They've led their hearers to make void the law of God and to persecute those who would keep it holy. Now, in their despair, these teachers confess before the world their work of deception. The multitudes are filled, filled with fury. We're lost, they cry, and you are the cause of our ruin. They turn upon the false shepherds. The very ones that, they once, that once admired them will pronounce the most dreadful curses upon them. The very hands that once crowned them with laurels will be raised for their destruction. The swords which were to slay God's people are now employed to destroy their enemies everywhere there is strife and bloodshed. 
a terrible day, a day that God never wanted to happen. But for those who persist in rebellion, that's what is going to take place. So let's now turn our attention to Cyrus and see how marvelously he becomes a symbol of Jesus Christ. The chapters of Isaiah, the 27 last chapters from 40 and onward, tell the story of Jesus through the history of Cyrus. It's a blended prophecy, would say. And through this study, we come upon his name and eight different titles that bear a resemblance to Jesus. And we take a look at his activities, and we see how marvelously they, they prefigure what, was Je- what Jesus was going to do. What does the name Cyrus mean? The name Cyrus means son. The Greeks translated with the word helios, which we find in some words in our vocabulary. So Cyrus means son. Does that uh, tell us a little bit about Jesus? Yes, it does. Jesus is the son of righteousness, Malachi 4, who rises with healing in his wings. And uh, in Luke 178, the father of John the Baptist made this statement, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring, that means the sun rising, the day spring from on high has visited us. When Jesus came the first time, it was like the rising of the sun, Zechariah is saying. When Jesus comes the second time, it will be like the rising of the sun. He, is the, he and his angels are the kings of the east who are coming to rescue the people held captive by, by Babylon. Day spring, the rising of the sun. So let's take a look at some of the titles that, I, that Cyrus had that pertain or symbolize Jesus. Cyrus was a king. The Bible mentions that many times. Here's a quote from the Cyrus Cylinder, a wonderful uh, artifact of archaeology that uh, confirms what the Bible is saying. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer, king of Akkad, king of the four quarters of the earth. In other words, Cyrus was saying he was a king of kings. And that's not a blasphemous title. Uh, The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was a king of kings and Artaxerxes was a king of kings. But even though Cyrus was a king of kings, who's the real king of kings? It's Jesus Christ. I love the story of Cyrus because it's highlighting Christ if we see his story uh, reflected in it. And that's the way we ought to read the Bible. He was a king, so is Jesus king. A lot of people don't recognize Jesus as king today. The picture of Jesus they have is uh, a weak, emaciated, powerless uh, person, and that's not Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings. Cyrus is also called the shepherd. If you have your Bible still open to Isaiah there, take a look at that verse in chapter 44. We're going to be taking a look at a couple of verses uh, near where that is. But in chapter 44, uh, it's the Lord who is speaking in verse 24, and then he says down in verse 28, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. In what ways was Cyrus a shepherd, and how did that prefigure Jesus? Well, the Bible says that during the time of the captivity, Israel was like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. They needed a shepherd to gather them together and take them to the fold. Cyrus was going to perform that duty. But he, what he did would, would prefigure Jesus only in a very dim way, only in a partial way. Jesus is the shepherd, right? Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, penned by David, who himself was a shepherd. The Bible says that Jesus is the, the shepherd who leads, Psalm 23. 
He's the seeking shepherd, the dividing shepherd, the good shepherd, the smitten shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. The question is, is he your shepherd? Have you committed your life to him? Are you part of his flock? Am I part of his flock? He wants to be our shepherd. Another title that the Bible gives to Cyrus is that he is called his anointed one. That's chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and so on. Anointed, what does that word mean? It uh, comes from a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which uh, we translate into our language as Messiah. And of course, Jesus is the Messiah. Cyrus was a Messiah, small m, but Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. When the, another language took over, Greek became predominant, the word in, for, uh, for anointed one in that language is Christos. And so that's why we call Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Christos means anointed one, as Meshiach does. Well, in the Old Testament, who were the ones that were anointed? And by the way, anointing occurred when you were about ready to take, take up your job. Uh, anointing was, was uh, done to prophets, priests, and kings at the time that they were given their commission to work for God. And if you think about it, Jesus is the highest expression of all three of those functions. Those who were anointed, Jesus is the highest of each one of those. He is that prophet that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy. He is our high priest serving now, interceding before God on our behalf, and he is the king of kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. Jesus is every single one of those to the highest degree. Cyrus was anointed to do a specific job. And if you think about it, the life of Jesus can be divided into those three parts. While he was on earth, he was speaking for God. He was revealing God's will to us like a prophet. And right now he's interceding for us, and soon he will reign in glory. Three parts of Christ's life, prophet, priest, and king. Cyrus was a king, a shepherd, he was an anointed one, and he was also a servant. Chapter 42, verse 1, makes that plain. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. What's a servant? A servant is one who obeys his master and does what he is told. And that's what Cyrus did. Cyrus didn't know that what he was doing Uh, was going to fulfill prophecy. He didn't know that he was actually serving God when he went against Babylon and defeated it. He found out later, we believe, through the ministry of Daniel, and he accepted that role. He did believe he was under on some kind of divine commission, but he didn't know uh, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews at that time. But he was a servant of the Lord, and you can read in Ezra chapter 1 how he proclaims that and, and confesses his faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Is Jesus God's servant? Yes, he is. Does that mean that he's inferior? Is he less than God because he is his servant, because he's his son? And because the Bible uses a few titles that if we don't understand their proper meaning, we may think that he is somehow uh, demoted and, and not completely God. Is that true? Not at all. Jesus is fully and completely divine. Settle that in your minds. It has to be because a divine law was broken. And only a divine atonement would suffice. That can settle that question right there. Only God could pay the price for the sins of mankind. Nevertheless, in order to accomplish that, Jesus stepped down and laid the prerogatives of divinity aside, and he became human. He had to 
because in order to accomplish salvation, his blood would have to be shed. He had to die. And deity cannot die. Deity is the essence of life. So God had to become man. So he became a servant. And those texts bear that out very beautifully, especially the one there in Philippians. Jesus is also the one God elected. Now, Cyrus was chosen, though he did not understand that at the time, but God selected him to do that job. Jesus is the one elected to be our Savior. None other, under no other name can we be saved, right? Acts 4.12. Now, our country was birthed in the cradle of Protestant Christianity. And so it wouldn't seem like it would be necessary to say something like that. But today, things have changed. And we need to make it clear that it is not Buddha, it is not Confucius, it is not any of these other gods that people may worship in some other parts of the world and in some places in our country now. It is only Jesus through whom salvation comes. Can I hear anybody say amen to that? He is the one that God has elected and chosen to be the Redeemer. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Remember this part of Isaiah is telling the story of Jesus through the history of Cyrus because they bore so many things in common. Cyrus was a Persian. Now, uh, to get the picture in your mind, just, just know that here you have Babylon and to the north and to the east is Persia. Persia was to the east of Babylon. That's important to know in our study. And the name Persia, as well as the name Euphrates, comes from the idea of to break, to burst. And that's the meaning of, of Persia. Cyrus the Persian was a breaker. And I have a whole lot of, of texts uh, to put on the screen here that we don't have time to look at. But if you want to take note of these and read each one of these texts, it will show how God commissioned Cyrus to be a breaker, which is a little bit of a play on words, because he being a Persian, that's what you might expect. He was told to go and break apart the kingdom of Babylon and her idols. That's what you read in those verses. And that's what he did. Christ is a Persian in that sense. I know you've never heard that title, Christ the Persian, and it's not in the Bible, but I suggest that it fits because Christ is the breaker. Christ is the one who broke the darkness of the kingdom of Satan, broke through the tomb at his resurrection, breaks the hard ground of our hearts so they can become fallow and we can receive the impulses of the Holy Spirit and ultimately will break apart the triumvirate of apostate Babylon. Story of the miracle on the River Kwai, very briefly, soldiers held in captivity during World War II under very severe circumstances. They had one of their jobs, they had to do a lot of digging. And uh, to do the digging, they were issued shovels, which they turned in at the end of their work shift. At the end of a work shift, um, the Japanese guard counted the shovels and announced that one shovel was missing. And unless the one who stole that shovel stepped forward and confessed his sin, he was going to start shooting all down the line. Uh, There was a moment's pause, and then a man stepped forward. He said, I took the shovel. And so before the eyes of the rest of the prisoners, that man was beaten to death by the butt of the Japanese soldier's rifle. The next work shift came and went, and at the end they counted the shovels, and guess what? There were no shovels missing at all. That was a miscount the day before, and the people began to realize that that man had stood up and given his life so they could live. And from that moment on, things in that prison atmosphere began to change. Their hearts began to be softened, and they realized that his experience was a dim reflection of what Jesus has done for all of us. 
Jesus is the one who breaks up the hard ground of our hearts and allows us to be molded and shaped into his character. Christ is the breaker. Did I miss one? No, here's Isaiah 46, 11. Cyrus is called the ravenous bird from the east. That seems like a strange title. It has to do with the sad fate of the wicked when Jesus comes. And this is a very sad thing to say. But keep in mind that God will respect freedom of choice to the utmost. He wants everybody to be saved in his kingdom. And when Jesus died on the cross, that's, that sacrifice was sufficient to cover all the sins of humanity. But nevertheless, he's not going to force people to be saved. And he will respect the decision of those who resist the gospel gift. And when that, what that means is that when Jesus comes back, there are going to be people that will be slain because he's going to come back in the brightness of his glory, outshining the sun. Now, for God's people, there's a marvelous miracle that's going to take place in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know how short that is. It's quick. In the twinkling of an eye, what's going to happen? We're going to be given new bodies, free of the disease that we have in these bodies, but more than that, bodies that are able to exist in the presence of God's glory. We don't have that now. But we're going to be given that because Jesus is coming in his Father's glory, in the glory of his angels, and his own glory, the Bible says. But we're going to be given a new body so that, that that's okay. But for those who have refused the gospel, it's not going to be okay. And that's very, very sad. And so the wicked will be strewn. Their carcasses will be covering the earth. And in the Bible way of expressing that, it's like saying that they are uh, the, the subjects of the vultures of prophecy. Many, many Bible texts that bear that out, including another one there in Revelation. So lastly, the last of the eight titles that Cyrus, he's the, you, he and his generals are given the title being kings of the east. Remember, Persia was to the east of Babylon. So geographically, that makes perfect sense. And he came and rescued God's people from Babylon. That's what this verse is telling us. Cyrus and his generals were the kings of the east who came to rescue God's people from ancient Babylon. Jesus and his angels are the kings of the east. In the Bible, east is always the direction of heaven. Garden of Eden, when the glory came that filled Ezekiel's temple, when the seal of God comes in Revelation 7, and what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Also what Zechariah's father said. The, the uh, day spring, the sun rising has come to us in the birth of the Christ child. Go on a little faster here. Now, let me tickle your, your mind with this thought. Because of the rotation of our globe, because of the way that the earth rotates, anything that approaches our planet from outer space appears to us first in the east. Whether that's the moon coming up, whether that's the sun coming up, whether that's constellations or whatever it might be, we first see anything from outer space in the direction of the east because of the way that our earth turns. Jesus said this, as lightning comes from the east, shines to the west, so shall the, sun, the coming of the Son of Man be. He could have chosen any direction. He could have said, because lightning goes everywhere. He could have said, as lightning comes from the south, or the west, or the north, but that's not what he said. He says, as lightning comes from the east. Very interesting. Here's what Sister White has to say, a beautiful description. Soon our eyes were drawn to the east, for a small black cloud had appeared, about the half as large as a man's hand, which we all knew was the sign of the Son of Man. In solemn silence, we gazed on the cloud as it drew nearer and became more lighter, glorious, and still more glorious till it was a great white cloud. The bottom appeared like fire. A rainbow was over the cloud. Sounds very much like what you see right over here. That's done. 
While around it were 10,000 angels singing most lovely song, and upon it sat the Son of Man. His hair was white and curly and lay on his shoulders, and upon his head were many crowns. So in his name, in his eight titles, which you see there on the screen right now, and in his activities, Cyrus, in a marvelous way, foreshadowed what Christ would do. What were the things that Cyrus did? He dried up the Euphrates, literally. Let me say a word about that. I know our time is running out. But uh, on a previous campaign, Cyrus came near this tributary of the Tigris River, which is nearby, a tributary called the Ganindes River. And it was a, a, a very torrential river. One of his prized Persian stallions broke free and attempted to cross that river and was drowned. And that enraged Cyrus to the point that he said, stop everything, we're not going forward till we do this one thing. And he commissioned his whole army split into half, and on either side of that river they dug 180 trenches, 360 trenches altogether, to dilute the water out of that river. He said, I want this river to be so shallow, a woman can cross and not get her knees wet. And in this way, he assuaged his anger from the river having, having taken the life of his prized his price stallion. So then later, Cyrus comes up to Babylon. The river Euphrates goes right through it. And as if in a flash, as if in a vision, he says, I know what has to be done. So he had his engineers dig a canal. And they diverted the river Euphrates into a ponding basin somewhere else. So that when that happened, the river receded and his soldiers could come right up to the gates. And, the, and what, what about the gates? Iron bars went down from the foundation of, of the city wall into the uh, riverbed, and there was a gate system there, and it was locked. However, on this occasion, what? The gates were unlocked exactly as Isaiah 45 said, a prophecy given about 150 years before Cyrus came on the scene. In all of these things, he illustrates what Jesus is going to do. When the armies come up, up against God's people, the raging rivers of the spiritual Euphrates, the waters, the multitudes of Babylon, Jesus is going to dry them up. And not one person who is faithful to God will be lost at that time. Cyrus conquered Babylon. That's what Jesus is going to do. Cyrus broke all the images. Jesus is going to do that. Cyrus rescued God's people. And more than that, you know, he's coming as a king. It, it was his right to take all those slaves and take them to his kingdom and do his building projects. That's what usually happened. That's not what Cyrus did. He said, I'm allowing you to go to your homeland. I want you to go back there, and even at my own expense, I want you to build your city again. Now, Jerusalem had been built before, but it was destroyed by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And so what Cyrus did, you might say, was to build a new Jerusalem. Does that tell you the story of Jesus? Can you see Jesus in this story anywhere? I think so. Those are some of the things that Cyrus did, and we're going to have to stop it here. This afternoon at 2.30, we're going to, or, or thereabouts, we're going to reconvene to continue our study in this most beautiful, beautiful passage, Armageddon, that tells the story of God's love and Jesus' redemption. That's what it's about. It's not about tanks and Palestine. It's about Jesus coming to take his people home. I want to be part of that group, don't you? And if we are faithful, God will see us through. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, today we want to recommit ourselves to you. We want to say today, thank you for the wondrous gift of salvation that Jesus came into this world and was born as a man and though he were God, nevertheless, he was here as a servant. He lived, he died, he rose again. And these things give us assurance, Lord, that your plan will come to completion. And we believe, we hope, even in our generation. 
Lord, we know the tumultuous, ominous times are ahead of us, but we believe that you will see us through to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.